Welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet podcast. My name is Sarah Backer, and I am a research associate at the Environmental Law Institute. The Environmental Law Institute has partnered with Sidley Austin LLP to launch the third season of the podcast series entitled The Enforcement Angle. Through the year-long series, our goal is to discuss state and federal enforcement of environmental laws and regulations with senior enforcement officials and thought leaders on environmental enforcement in the United States and globally. The host of this series is Justin Savage, a partner and the global co-leader of the environmental practice at Sidley Austin LLP. On today's episode, Justin speaks with David Ullman, the Assistant Administrator of the Office of Enforcement and Compliance Assurance, OECA. How are you doing today, David? I'm doing very well, Justin. How are you? I'm living the dream. And before we get started about your work at EPA, important work at EPA, just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, favorite sports team, so people get a sense of you. Okay. Well, I'm originally from Flint, Michigan. That Flint, although when I was born in 1962, it was a very different Flint than it is today. I grew up in Washington, D.C. My family moved here so that my dad could work at the Department of Labor in the same building complex that I'm in today at, at EPA. He, he started working at, at the Department wow. of Labor in January of 1965. So I grew up in Washington, D.C., and that means that I am a fan of all Washington sports. I was a huge Washington Senators fan as a kid and crushed when they moved to Texas. And, and frankly, you know, 50 years later, when the Rangers finally won the World Series, it was too far, too far along for me. Um, I wasn't really pulling for anybody, but I have rooted for years. The team I took to calling the Washington Football Club, I don't call them by either their old name or their new goofy name. Hopefully the new owners will come up with a better one. Was thrilled when the Capitals won the Stanley Cup. And since I spent the last 15 years at the University of Michigan, it won't surprise you that I'm a big fan of Michigan football. So to all those Michigan alumni out there, go blue. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And, you know, unfortunately, the Nats got rid of a lot of their great players like Bryce and Kyle Schwarber and Trey Turner and the Phillies. So my wife came to call them the mini Nats, but they didn't really make it either this year, but always next year. And, and going back to your time at DOJ, you were the chief of the environmental crime section, a career position. You now have a Senate confirmed position at EPA. Are there lessons that you learned sitting in the career seat as a section chief that informed the rest of your career, whether as an academic or now as the assistant administrator for OECA? Well, the career attorneys at the Justice Department and the career staff at EPA are the best of the best. And the, the public service that they do year in and year out across administrations is work that, that we can all should all as a as a country be proud of and and in fact one of the things that i think you know there's a lot going on in the country today and a lot of challenges facing the country today but i'd love to see us get back to a place where we celebrated public servants and where the tendency to 
to view public servants as just another entity that can be subject to attack, I just see that tendency recede because nobody I worked with at the Justice Department, nobody I work with at EPA has a political agenda. They they're just trying to they're just trying to do good in communities across America. And that's really what America's all about. So we we should value that and we should appreciate that. I think more broadly, you know, what I in terms of lessons I learned, which was your actual question, there are a few things I would just mention briefly, and I'm happy to talk about them more if you want. But, uh, but you know, the, the first is that pollution scars communities, and it, it puts people in harm's way, sometimes in very directly in harm's way. I prosecuted a case where workers were sent into a tank of cyanide waste, and a 20-year-old man in his first job out of high school suffered severe and permanent brain damage. I worked on another case where people couldn't go out in their porches at night because the pollution from a nearby drum recycling facility was so bad. And I think we need to recognize that pollution crime and and pollution violations are something that we should care about addressing no matter who the president of the United States is, which actually goes back to what I did already share about the, the importance of the career staff. But two other things I'd mention briefly are that I think it's critically important both at the Justice Department and at EPA, to, of course, base all of our decisions on the facts and the law without any regard for partisan politics. But I also think it's very important that that not be a mechanical formulation. We shouldn't just be bringing cases because we can. We should be bringing cases because it is the right thing to do. We should be focused on doing justice in our work. If we're talking about it from a Justice Department standpoint, we should be focused on protecting communities in our work if we're talking about it through an EPA lens. But either way, how we exercise our discretion to me is critically important and a necessary corollary to what we say all the time, which is that we make decisions based on the law and the facts. And then just the last thing I'll, I'll just share, because you asked about my time as chief of the environmental crime section. I used to say when I was at Justice, and this is even more true today at EPA, that I, I could come in in the morning and I could just, I could be busy all day just letting the action come to me. Just whatever people had that they needed my help addressing, whatever issues they wanted to raise, that could be my day. And I could make a difference in the quality of the, the, the work of my old office. But if I did that, I would just be managing and I'd be completely reactive. And, you know, I think probably the single biggest takeaway I have about leadership positions like the one I had at the Justice Department, the one I have today is that it is critically important to not let that happen, to be proactive, to have a leadership agenda, to have a limited set of goals that you want to accomplish and to make sure you're doing work every day to help achieve those. Well said, David. A couple of things resonated. First, in my 10-year career at DOJ as a career, not a political position, I just remember people would occasionally demonize us or accuse us of acting in conspiracies against them. And I would just tell them, I'm not paid enough to demonize you or conspire you. I'm just trying to file the facts and the law. And you can disagree with that. In my role as a defense lawyer, we frequently disagree But there is a level at which the disagreement becomes a bit crazed. And the other thing you touched on, which is really important that people may not understand being outside of government, is there's always many more cases than can be brought. I just remember when I was at the Environment Division at DOJ, we literally had a referral room. All the cases that had come in that no one was attending to, 
You could go in and talk to the assistant section chief and pick one up. And I think you've really early in your tenure at EPA tried to come up with some initiatives to focus resources. So formally, I think it's the six national enforcement and compliance initiatives for fiscal year 2024, which are the enforcement priors of the agent, because there's always more at the top of the funnel than what you can do at the bottom of the funnel. But just at a high level, can you walk us through those six priorities and just explain what's your, you know, the thinking of the agency behind that? I'd be happy to do that, Justin. And let me just pull back a second and share with you something that I said at my confirmation hearing, which was in September of 2021, because I was asked there by Senator Carper, who's the chair of the Environment and Public Works Committee. He asked me what my priorities would be if I was confirmed in this role. I said back in 2021 that one of my top priorities was going to be addressing 21st century environmental problems in the enforcement program. I think there's a tendency, you know, for all of us, no matter where we are in life, there's a tendency to to do what we know how to do, what we've done for many years. And I wanted to make sure that we weren't fighting the battles or addressing the challenges of 10 years ago or 20 years ago in the enforcement of compliance programs at EPA. I really wanted to pivot us to focusing on the biggest issues facing citizens, facing everyone living in the United States. And, you know, that begins with climate change. That continues with the idea of promoting environmental justice in our communities. That includes addressing the scourge of PFAS contamination, which I heard about from both Democratic and Republican senators when I did the visits that eventually led to my confirmation. So when I arrived at the agency and I started hearing about this initiative process that you've you've asked about, what was most important to me was that we align those initiatives with what we all could agree were the biggest, most significant environmental challenges facing the United States, facing the world. So you mentioned there are six of them. We have led with the first ever climate initiative, mitigating climate change initiative. It focuses on HFCs, hydrofluorocarbons. It focuses also on methane. HFCs and methane are two climate super pollutants. HFCs are hundreds to thousands of times more potent than carbon dioxide. Methane is, I think, 25 times more potent than carbon dioxide. These are the major drivers near term in causing the acceleration in climate change that is frankly putting our kids and our grandkids, putting, putting their futures at risk. So I want to, you know, that's, that's initiative number one. We need to be addressing climate change, which is an existential threat and which is top priority for the president, top priority for the EPA administrator and a top priority for me. But we also need to be doing what we can to protect military families and farming communities from PFAS contamination. So we started an initiative there. We need to protect overburdened and marginalized communities from the contamination that is presented by what's referred to as coal ash. There's approximately 300 facilities nationwide where there is significant coal ash contamination, threatening drinking water supplies and threatening the health of communities. Those three, climate, PFAS, and coal ash, never before the subject of an EPA enforcement initiative. We added all those. They are classic examples of what I've referred to as 21st century 
environmental challenges. But if I could, let me just say a quick word about the other three, because the other three initiatives are initiatives that we carried over from the last administration. One is a what's called an air toxins initiative, trying to tackle the problem of hazardous air pollution in, in communities across America. But we made a major shift in the approach to that initiative. We, we made it for the first time ever a geographical initiative. And, and what I mean by that is we're asking each EPA region to identify communities within their region, overburdened, marginalized communities in their region that are suffering the most significant air toxin pollution. And we're asking them to take concerted steps, whether it's using fence line monitoring, whether it's using remote sensing, whatever tools they need to use, cutting edge 21st century detection tools to try and address that problem and get healthier air to those communities. And then we're continuing a drinking water initiative that the last administration started so we can make good on the promise of safe drinking water for every community in America. And we're continuing a really important chemical accident prevention initiative that actually began in the Obama administration. And I mentioned the second three, the the continuing initiatives, both because they're part of what we've committed to doing over the next four years, but also because they represent something I think is really important for listeners to know, which is the critical work of EPA enforcement and compliance assurance continues across administrations. I said a little while ago that partisan politics shouldn't play any role in our decision about which cases to bring. I hope people recognize the significance, the importance of the fact that we're continuing initiatives, you know, including one began in the last administration, even though this administration is very different, has a very different approach to environmental protection, very different politically. I think that continuity, which the career staff helps us preserve, is a really important feature of EPA enforcement programs. Yeah, it, I think that's a key point. And, you know, it's interesting being a defense lawyer during the President Trump's administration. You know, we had your predecessor, Susan Bodine, on. I think the popular perception is there was no enforcement. I think that's mistaken. I think there's differences. There's different choices. There's priorities. There's all kinds of other factors you could compare and contrast. But I think you hit on a key point, which is, as a defense lawyer, we were very busy. There were things going on. And Susan Bodine and her staff and Many of our staff were still there, continue, but let's focus on one of the new ones, PFAS, perfluoral alkyl substances. You know, this is a substance that's fairly ubiquitous, I would contend, in modern society. How do you enforce that? Like, where do you even start from that perspective? Because you see in the news, you hear in the news, it's in a lot of things. So, David, just looking at this, where do you start from an enforcement perspective? So, Justin, what I thought you were going to say is, how do you have an initiative to address PFAS when you don't even have any rules yet? And when Congress hasn't passed any laws that give you the authority? And of course, on the Congress part, you know, I'll leave to Congress the decision about whether they want to legislate in this area, but they have already given us tools under the Clean Water Act, under the Safe Drinking Water Act, under the Hazardous Substance Law, the Superfund Law. They have given us tools to address PFAS. And so, so, so my view is, The agency right now is in the process of developing a drinking water standard for PFAS. They're in the process of designating two PFAS substances as as hazardous substances, which will bring PFAS into the Superfund program. And, you know, I look at this and, and you're right, Justin, it is ubiquitous. It is in communities across America. It is a major challenge 
for the enforcement program at EPA that is literally right around the corner. Sometime next year, all those rules are going to come online. And we need to be ready. We need to be prepared to meet the avalanche of work that we're going to have to address a problem that's threatening the health and threatening the well-being of communities across America. So how do we do that? I've already talked about the importance of using discretion. You know, we don't go after every last entity that's involved in the PFAS problem. We start with the entities that we think are most responsible, which in our view is the companies that have manufactured PFAS for decades and put PFAS out into our communities in ways that have exposed us to risk. Today, even ahead of, of, of having the new rules on the book, we can go out and we can identify and characterize what the contamination is near PFAS manufacturing plants. So we're in the process of doing that. It's multiple dozens. I don't have the exact number in front of me, but there are facilities all across the country where PFAS have been manufactured. There's also companies across America that have profited by using PFAS in their products. We're going to start with them. We're going to focus on them. They're the most significant contributors to the PFAS problem. And we're going to characterize the problem. If there are threats to drinking water or other threats that are endangering communities, we're going to take immediate action to address that, which we can do under the statutes that Congress has already passed. And then if there is Superfund cleanup work that needs to happen near those facilities, assuming the hazardous substance designation happens in the new year, we'll start with cleanup around those facilities. But let me say one more thing, which is what we don't intend to do. We do not intend to go after farmers who were spreading biosolids on their fields that it turns out contain PFAS. We do not intend to go after municipal airports who are using a substance called AFFF as a flame retardant in the event of a plane crash or other incident involving an aircraft. We don't intend to go after municipal wastewater treatment plants that received PFAS in the wastewater that they came in and it's gone back out the other end. And we don't, we don't intend to go after landfills. We intend to be very judicious about how we use these new tools, which is something that EPA has done for a long time, particularly under the Superfund program. But as I've talked about today, really something that we're supposed to do, in my view, should be doing across all areas of enforcement activity. And I think if we do that, we do this the right way, we can make a difference in communities across America, we can start providing some protection for people from what you've correctly called a ubiquitous threat. Take a step back. So, you know, the regulated community frequently complains, EPA is enforcing too late, we didn't have notice. And this, you know, the complaint might be it's too early with these rules are not final yet. And typically there is, I'll just say it, I mean, you can agree or disagree, there might be some lead time before a rule goes into effect in order to comply. I guess you're out there telling people this is coming. You know, what do you say to a critic in the regulated community who says, look, there should be a pause before EPA begins enforcing because the rules are not finalized and we need to get we need to get an assessment of the final rule and come up with a compliance program. It's not instantaneous. How do you respond to some critic who would raise that lead time argument? They should go to the communities that have drinking water that's threatened by PFAS, where they, they can't use their drinking water supply because there's PFAS in the drinking water. I mean, should I tell that community? Should you tell that community? Should anybody tell that community they just need to wait? They need to wait a few more years to have contaminated drinking water for a few more years? That's not an answer for that community. And of course, 
that's where my responsibility is. That's where the agency's responsibility is, is to protect those communities. And the Safe Drinking Water Act has said for years that EPA can take action if drinking water supplies are subject to an imminent and substantial endangerment. We've got similar authority under the Clean Water Act. So in terms of what we're doing today, we're using longstanding authorities. But in terms of these new rules, like I don't know how much more the agency could forecast the fact that these rules are coming. The agency has been talking about this since before this administration, but especially during this administration, the EPA administrator, Michael Regan, developed a, a PFAS roadmap, and we are following that to a T. So I don't think there's any mystery about what we're doing, about where we're going to go. And I'm actually telling you and telling everybody else who, who I have a chance to talk with that we're going to focus on PFAS manufacturers. We're going to focus on people who profited from the use of PFAS. The approach we're taking is all about doing right by communities across America. And, and as important in saying where we're going to go and where we're not going to go, we're making a concerted effort to be fair, to be judicious in the use of our enforcement resources. And that's the obligation I think we have. Yeah, and that's important. And I don't mean to be flippant about it, but there are companies that have invested in granular activated carbon and other technologies to treat PFAS in water because there are several state standards. And I think to put a finer point of the concern that I raised before, it's are we going to have EPA now come on with regulations and enforcement that make us have to change those community investments or you know allow don't allow us to do some of the things we're doing. So I think that you know, having been involved at several refineries and chemical plants where you do have to use, had to use foam, and then there's treatment and other things, I think that is just the concern is you need the certainty in order to engage with the community and get buy-in. So I understand your perspective, though. And turning to another community issue, you mentioned environmental justice, fence line monitoring, remote monitoring for facilities. What other things would you say to companies that have assets in environmental justice communities that score high on the EJ index, what, and then we get this question all the time, what practically are the expectations for my regulator? What am I supposed to do differently? And how, how would you answer that, David? That's a great question. And I did mention environmental justice as a classic example of a 21st century environmental problem. And, and Justin, I, you know, I think whether you work on behalf of industry, whether you work at EPA or at the Justice Department or with a state environmental agency, or for that matter, an environmental group or an industry group, I think we all know, we can all recognize that overburdened and marginalized communities have borne the brunt of the pollution problems in the United States. And so when we talk about environmental justice, you know, what, what, what I really think we're talking about is how do we promote environmental justice? How do we provide the same level of protection in overburdened and marginalized communities that we're providing in, you know, frankly, we've been providing for a very long time in wealthier communities, in the parts of the country where those corporate executives might live? Like, you know, why should somebody who's in a poorer community, in an overburdened community, why, why, should, why should they not have the same benefits of clean air and safe drinking water that the rest of us enjoy? So I'd like to think that's a principle and an idea that we could all get behind. And, and we are weaving, I talked about the national initiatives we're doing, we are incorporating environmental justice principles into each and every one of those initiatives. That's something else that's never been done before and, and, and really important. But we're not stopping there. We're also prioritizing what we call environmental justice communities, these overburdened and marginalized communities, 
we are prioritizing those communities for inspections. So about 60% of the inspections we did last year were in EJ communities. That's up from 35 to 40% in the last administration. More than half of our case conclusions in the past year were in environmental justice communities. That's a significant increase from the past administration where it was probably around 30%. We've never, as a country, done what we needed to do to protect these communities from harmful pollution. Never before. We are doing it today. So for companies that chose to site themselves within those communities, and for companies that have been engaging in unlawful pollution activity, I think the message is clean up your acts because we are going to make sure we pay attention to those communities. We are going to bring enforcement actions in those communities, and we're going to do it in ways like we never have before, because that's what environmental justice looks like in the United States in 2023. And I can hear the passion in your voice. And does having been born in Flint, Michigan and having ties to the community, does that inform how you think about environmental justice? Because they've had a major incident. And what? how does that inform your thinking, if at all? You know, what informs my thinking on this issue is a few things. One, you asked me earlier about my work at the Justice Department and, and, and the lessons I'd learned. And I said I'd learned how pollution scars communities. And I worked on cases that were environmental justice cases. As a prosecutor, I saw, I, I told you about the workers who were sent into a tank of cyanide waste. That's a form of environmental injustice. That should never happen in the United States of America in this century. I told you about the families that couldn't go out on their porches at night because the fumes from the drum recycling facility across the street were so bad. That should never happen in the United States of America. And you're now asking about Flint. And, you know, it's been a long time since I lived in Flint. But nobody, nobody living in these United States should ever be exposed to the kind of lead pollution that the residents of Flint were exposed to. And to flip it around, you know, everybody living in the United States, every parent should know that when they turn on the tap in the morning, the water's going to be safe for their children to drink. Every one of those parents, when they take their kids to school in the morning, should know that the air is going to be safe for their kids to breathe. Those are fundamental, basic commitments that we should be able to make to every community in the United States. And that's what environmental justice is all about. And you're right, I'm passionate about it. And I'm working in an agency where I think all across the agency, there's a commitment to trying to make a difference in those communities. Thanks, David. And let's let's pull the lens up somewhat. I mean, in this position, and I think you've you've probably done this in your career, I'm fortunate to be able to travel to other countries, interact with different legal systems. And you know, you've raised climate change. That is a question that comes up frequently, whether in the U.S. or in other jurisdictions. And you know, as people think about that issue, think about how it should be addressed. How do you promote a level playing field, particularly for U.S. companies when they may be competing against companies in other jurisdictions? And not to call any country out where there's less enforcement or there's no enforcement at all, and ultimately. You know, they're looking at trying to do the right thing, but they may be competing with someone who has no restrictions on climate change. How, what, what would you say to them if you're sitting with them? Let me start by reiterating that I don't think there's a more significant 21st century environmental challenge than climate change. And, you know, I talked about it earlier in terms of 
the need that we have to take steps today and tomorrow and by the end of this decade to ensure that we head off the worst effects of climate change so that our kids and so our grandkids have a sustainable future. Like if that's if that doesn't motivate us, if that's not something we care about, well, I, I don't know what would. And so the imperative to deliver on climate change, right alongside the imperative we just talked about to promote environmental justice, those are the two biggest challenges that I see that I'm committed to addressing. And if I could, I just I just want to share with you and your listeners that I have directed the enforcement team at EPA in what we called our climate enforcement and compliance strategy that I issued at the end of September to make sure we are doing everything we can in the enforcement program to address climate change, both to limit climate change, but also to prepare for a world in which climate change is going to be present despite our best efforts. So climate change mitigation, climate change, what we call adaptation and resilience, those are gonna be priorities for our enforcement program going forward. And that's a you know, it's something we've never done before. You are, of course, right that climate change is a global problem. And ultimately, tackling it is going to require countries around the world to all do their part. But climate change is something that we have a unique responsibility for in the United States. I mean, part of this is who we are. We are world leaders, and we set an example for the rest of the world. So if the world is facing an existential threat, the United States has to play a leadership role in addressing it. That is who we are as a country. But we also have more than our share of responsibility for this problem. We have contributed per capita, per person, more than any other country in the world to the problem of climate change. So I think we have an obligation to address climate change, both because of our leadership role in the world and because of our historical contribution to it. And, and, and frankly, that moral obligation, that leadership obligation and that moral obligation comes before what you're saying about, well, other countries in the world might not be doing as much. I think we have to lead and hope that they will follow. I think the last thing we want right now where we face this monumental a challenge, one that threatens the livelihoods of our kids and our grandchildren, the last thing we want is a race to the bottom where we say, we're only gonna do what every other country in the world agrees to do. No, no, we're Americans. This is the United States of America. We need to do more, we need to lead, and, and we need to address the fact that, that we've contributed significantly to this problem. And I, and I think we're taking major steps in the right direction. And I think we're doing it in a way that actually provides opportunity for American businesses, because frankly, the clean energy revolution and the jobs and the economic opportunities that that provides, I think, are far greater than any economic dislocation that comes from holding ourselves to high standards. Yeah, and I think about it as not so much dislocation as leakage. In other words, if company A is in the U.S. and is trying to do the right thing and company B is not, that then you end up, company A may fade away and you end up with more emissions. But just from an enforcement perspective, you know, I'm assuming EPA would try to ensure a level playing field. If companies are doing business in the U.S., you know, they have to comply with our laws no matter where they're based. I mean, is that fair? If they're doing business here, they have to comply with our laws. Absolutely. Thank I mean, you. And the, right? I mean, we are a yes. nation of laws, not men and women. That has been true since 1776 when our country was created. And, you know, we, we don't have kings and queens. We have elected leaders and, and, you know, we all serve. Well, I serve now at the pleasure of the president, but, you know, every elected leader serves at the pleasure of the people of the United States. And a core component of that social compact, if you will, is that we are a nation of laws and we expect 
companies in this country to follow our laws. And we expect companies from other parts in the world who do business in the United States to follow our laws. Absolutely. One way you enforce the laws is with resources. And it's no secret that there's been at least a decade of declining resources at the Office of Enforcement and Compliance Insurance that you now lead. You know, has that trend changed? And what does that mean for EPA? Well, Justin, I'm so glad you asked about this because, you know, I, I talked earlier about my confirmation hearing and, and what I said were my priorities. And my top priority was addressing 21st century environmental problems. But right there next to it was reinvigorating, revitalizing the enforcement and compliance program at EPA. And the numbers are staggering. Starting in 2011 and continuing until a year ago, EPA lost approximately 950 positions from its enforcement and compliance program. About 30% of our staff, their positions were cut. We went from being a little over 3,400 people working on enforcement and compliance assurance across America, protecting communities across America, to under 2,500 people. And you don't experience those kind of cuts without seeing a significant fall off in the amount of enforcement activity. And, and, you know, look, some people in industry might cheer that, although I'd suggest that's a mistake. I mean, it's a mistake both because it means our communities are less protected, first and foremost, but it also is a mistake because, you know, most companies in America, most of your clients, I'd, I'd like to think, are trying to do the right thing and are trying to meet their legal obligations. And they shouldn't be at a competitive disadvantage with polluters and people who are breaking the law. But that's exactly what happens when you gut enforcement and compliance programs in the ways that we've seen over the last decade. So this has been a priority for me since I arrived at the agency. It's been a priority for, for President Biden, for Administrator Regan. We all recognize that we need to change where we are, where we've been on enforcement and compliance at the agency. And over the last year, we have been able to add back or at least given authority to the offices that make up the Office of Enforcement and Compliance Assurance and to the 10 EPA regions. We've been able to add back about 300 positions. It's not enough. It is less than a third of what we lost, but it's an important start. And the president has called for more in his FY24 budget. Obviously, it remains to be seen what will happen there. We, we don't yet have a budget for the new year, but I'm going to do everything I can for however long I'm here to make sure we're getting the resources we need to address environmental crime and to address significant pollution that is occurring in communities across America and to make sure we're delivering on the promise of clean air and safe drinking water for everybody living in the United States. And besides resources, I mean, one of the other interesting issues about enforcement you brought up earlier, which is the use of appropriate discretion because the top of the enforcement funnel is always larger than the, the bottom of the cases you can bring. And you were actually not only a brilliant law professor, but your scholarship is and was useful to practitioners on enforcement, particularly in environmental criminal enforcement. I mean, how does that body of scholarship inform what you're doing today? I had this great opportunity at the University of Michigan to, to create an environmental law program there and to work with our students. And I think what you're referring to is a project I started looking at environmental criminal cases and trying to help provide better understanding of what makes environmental cases criminal or, or, or more specifically, like what are the aggravating factors that are present in environmental criminal cases? I, I said earlier that it's, it shouldn't just be 
you know, we, we should always follow the law and always follow the facts, but prosecutors and, and people working in enforcement shouldn't be automatons. You know, they needed to be mindful of fairness and doing what's right for communities and, and, and doing justice in their cases. And so what I wrote as a law professor is that if we're going to bring criminal charges against somebody for an environmental violation, there should be aggravating factors present that justify the use of that enforcement tool, that justify calling a corporation a criminal, a criminal corporation, or that justify potentially, you know, giving somebody a criminal record and potentially sending them to jail. And I, you know, I thought based on my experience at, at the Justice Department that environmental harm, deceptive and misleading conduct, operating outside the regulatory system, and repetitive violations, those four factors, I thought one or more of those should be present. That's what I saw a lot of. And what my students helped me do is look at every case that was brought over a period of more than 10 years and, and see that actually most of the time those factors are present. And I just think that's really important. Both the fact that those factors are, are, are typically present in environmental criminal cases, but also I think EPA and the Justice Department should strive to make sure that always remains true, that they're using their authority, whether I'm here or somebody else, in ways that involves the proper use of prosecutorial discretion. So that's what that work was about. And I, you know, I'm not coding our cases anymore while I'm here and my students aren't either. But I'd like to think if somebody was looking at the cases we're bringing today, they'd see the same factors present. I'm committed to making sure we are reserving criminal prosecution for the most egregious violations and only bringing criminal charges when they're aggravating factors that justify it. And looking at it from the other's perspective, your career has included serving as a counsel to a corporate monitor, Larry Thompson, in the VW matter. What lessons did you learn there that you didn't in the rest of your illustrious career? Well, thanks for asking about this too, Justin. I mean, I, my time working on the Volkswagen monitorship was a great learning experience for me, in part because Larry Thompson, who served as Deputy Attorney General under President George W. Bush, is such a great American, such a phenomenal former public servant, and somebody who really led an industry as well. And so I, I learned a lot just by being with him and hearing about his experiences. But I also learned a lot by doing the work that he asked me to do, going around to all the different, Volkswagen is a huge company. It's one of the largest companies in the world, and they have multiple boards. And Larry had me do presentations for them about US environmental law and about the environmental crimes program in the United States and about the role of ethics and integrity and sustainability programs in leading companies. And, and that was my biggest takeaway. You know, when I, when I was at the Justice Department, we used to always talk about corporate compliance. What do companies need to do to have good compliance programs? And what I learned on the Volkswagen case is what really motivates people and what really changes corporate behavior in the most meaningful ways is if we're striving to be ethical companies, if we're striving to conduct our business activities with integrity. And in the environmental space, if we're trying to promote sustainable solutions in how we conduct our business activities. And frankly, if we're doing all that, we're going to clear the compliance bar by a healthy margin. And, you know, look, companies are human systems. They're made up of people. People are going to make mistakes. There may be some times when violations occur. But if we're aiming high through ethics, integrity, and sustainability programs, I just think the number of times that we're going to miss the mark and find ourselves in companies breaking the law is going to be far less frequent. And that is a really important goal. And that's, that's something I'm glad you asked about. It's not something I've been able to focus on so much at 
EPA, although I hope I'll have the opportunity because I, I think it's really important to promote the efforts of companies that have strong ethics, integrity, and sustainability programs. That is critical. And I want to, let's, let's get to our final issue. And this is something near and dear to my heart. You know, having grown up or not everyone in the family graduated from high school, much less college to where I am today, I still firmly believe America is the land of opportunity, not to get too soapboxy, but you also have to give back. I mean, I have people in my family serve in law enforcement, military. I did a 10-year stint at the Environment Division at DOJ. So for me, public service is really, really important. And it's, it's disappointing. You see year after year surveys indicating declining interest in it. And you alluded to it a little bit. You know, we're in a very polarized society, and that's great. We're a democracy. But also, you know, I'd like young folks to serve in whatever fashion, whether that's EPA, DOJ, military, whatever. But how would you encourage people to serve, David? Another just fabulous question. And I I will say, I agree with you. I think public service is a high calling. And I think that's probably clear from what I've said already about the value of public servants and, and how much I respect and admire the career staff at EPA and at the Justice Department and throughout the federal and state governments in the United States. There's a great John F. Kennedy line. I think he said, just before he became president, he said, those to whom much is given, much is expected in return. And I always shared that with my law students on the first day of law school, because I felt that any of them who were at the University of Michigan Law School, one of the top universities in the world, one of the top law schools in the United States, they were privileged. They weren't all from privileged backgrounds. They might be as uh, uh, you know the first person in their family to go to college or to law school, but they were you know we are all living in the United States, and if they had the opportunity to attend a place like the University of Michigan. Much had been given to them and much was expected in return. I think we all have an obligation to give back. I think we all have an obligation to try and not just enrich ourselves, but to make the lives of other people better. I mean, that is what has drawn me into public service. It sounds like that was what drew you into public service. And I'd love to see us get back to a place as I said at the beginning of our conversation, where we celebrated public service more, where we didn't think public servants were another entity that that was a partisan football that could be subject to attack. I mean, there's so many different ways I think we can and should come back together as a country. And the value of public service is one of them. And so what I would say to my students is, and what I would say to young people more generally, starts with what I used to say to my students about public service as a calling and the obligation I think we all have to give back. But there's a lot in it for them too. And I think people don't always realize this. I mean, the reality is, is that if you, you know, you work at a place like the Justice Department, as I'm sure you experienced for 10 years in the Environment Division, and as I experienced for 17 years there, there is an esprit de corps and a collegiality that makes public service, makes government agencies really special places to work. And, And I think a lot of it comes from the fact that there's this shared mission. There's the degree to which we're promoting a greater good. We're we're all part of something that's bigger than ourselves. And that work is inspiring and the work atmosphere is often much more rewarding when we're working on things that are bigger than ourselves. And, you know, the reality is we also, in in public service, we give people opportunities that frankly, they wouldn't have till much later in their careers. You know, I got to be the lead, the lead attorney on cases, major, major significant cases in the environmental crimes program within a few years of joining the Justice Department. How cool is that? And how great is it? to be able to say, as I used to do and as you used to do, 
how great is it to be able to go into court and to say your name for the United States of America? I don't think there's a greater honor you could have, despite all the challenges facing our country. I think working on behalf of the United States of America, working on behalf of people living in this country is, is just a tremendous honor. And I think it's as high as calling today as it was when you and I joined the Justice Department. And in fact, given the challenges of this moment, I think it's an even higher calling. And I hope people will heed the call and those numbers will turn around. On that eloquent note, we know you're extremely busy. Thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for the opportunity to join you. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.